0: Hi everyone, um, I'm Renee Fomiadi, a researcher at the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society in La Trobe University. And I'm here with my colleagues, Dr. Adrian Ferugia and Associate Professor Kate Zia, um, as well as Sione Crawford and Jane Dipper from Harm Reduction Victoria. Um, before we begin, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters, and culture. I pay my respects to elders past and present um I also acknowledge the Wurundjeri people upon whose lands I currently reside and that sovereignty was never ceded um so just to tell you a little bit about ourselves and um, what we're doing here today is that Dr Adrian Farugia and I both work in the drugs gender and sexuality program um, at Arches at La Trobe University and we recently completed a study on overdose prevention and take home naloxone um, of which we were lucky to have Jane Dicker um who we're chatting to today she was on our advisory panel Um, And we also have Associate Professor Kate Sear, who's a researcher at Arches and an Australian Research Council Future Fellow and Practicing Solicitor. So Kate's research is socio-legal and explores intersections between harm reduction in the law and drugs, gender, human rights and the law. And so we're sitting down for International Overdose Awareness Day to speak to Harm Reduction Victoria's CEO, Sione Crawford. And health promotion officer Jane Dicker about the work they do in overdose prevention and the implications for their work of the recent legislative changes related to naloxone distribution. Um, Sione has been working in peer-based organizations of people who use drugs for many years and is currently the CEO of Harm Reduction Victoria, the organization representing people who use drugs in Victoria, Australia. Jane has worked in various roles with people who use drugs since 1998 She is a keen advocate of peer work and lived experience in relation to drug use and is passionate about the health and human rights of people who use drugs and Jane currently coordinates the health promotion team at Harm Reduction Victoria. Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the chat. Hi, Hi. Hi. (laughs) thanks Renee. a lot to get through at the beginning. Uh, But to begin I'll just stick with me for a couple moments longer and I just thought it might be useful um, for those listening to just say a few words about International Overdose Awareness Day. I actually didn't know this but um, International Overdose Awareness Day was started in 2001 by the fantastic Sally Finn who was working at the time at the Salvation Army NSP in St Kilda. Um, It's now coordinated by the Pennington Institute, It's the world's largest annual campaign to end overdose, remember without stigma those who have died, and acknowledge the grief of the family and friends left behind. And more broadly, International Overdose Awareness Day spreads the message about the tragedy of drug overdose death and that drug overdose is preventable. And a lot of the work we do at Arches um, also aims to address stigma, overdose prevention, and the human rights of people who use drugs So in addition to personal reasons and the way we've individually been affected by overdose, this is an important day for us um, as well. But Adrian, before we ask Sione, Jane and Kate a few questions about the recent legislative changes, perhaps you'd like to say a few things about overdose and naloxone distribution in Australia and Victoria.
1: Yeah, thanks, Renee. Um, I mean, it's really important to be sort of marking this I mean, yeah, International Adverse Awareness Day is such an important day on our calendar, and it's especially important to be marking it this year given the sort of public consciousness is very much focused on one specific kind of public health issue at the moment being COVID-19. So I thought it was especially important to kind of have an, have an event today. Um, and, yeah, while Australia hasn't seen the kind of the sheer loss of life that we've seen in the full-blown overdose crisis in North America, for example, um, it's days like today, you know, make us remember that overdose does continue to sort of steadily rise in Australia and in Victoria, where we're all based. And so, um, and where these recent legislative changes have have occurred. So just before we kind of get into that, it's worth mentioning some background information on that. So um, overdose is a significant issue in Victoria and the recent report by the, from the coroner's court, for example, indicated that there was um, over 500 overdose deaths in the state last year. And um, we know that multiple illicit and illicit drugs are sort of implicated in the majority of these with opioids being particularly significant. And uh, again, yeah, one important dynamic to mention in relation to COVID-19 was that there were really, there were these concerns early on that there were, we were going to see a really sharp increase in overdose sort of uh, to do with some of the things connected to COVID-19. But this report from the coroners suggests that that hasn't really occurred. And um we're seeing, seeing this sort of fairly steady, slightly increasing numbers, which itself just remains a significant concern, considering like how many efforts we've you know, put in to sort of curb this. Um, you know, naloxone is, or naloxone distribution is one, of, is one of the key efforts to address overdose. And, you know, for those who don't know, naloxone is an opioid antagonist uh, that can be administered uh, during the moment of overdose and essentially reverse it. So it's a, it's a very safe and effective way of intervening in this sort of uh, moment of overdose. And it's just a genuine lifesaver. And um, yeah, while it was used for many years by paramedics and hospitals, Australia was kind of behind a number of other contexts or similar contexts in making naloxone more available. And it uh, wasn't until the first trial, I think in 2012, maybe in the ACT, that it was available. And now we have programs of varying size and approach in all Australian jurisdictions. And in 2019, the federal government funded a, a sort of what's called a national take-home naloxone pilot, not active in all the states, but in uh, I think three of them. And uh, in Victoria specifically, naloxone is available from a range of health services for free, like in health and co-health services, as well as um, can be purchased over the counter in pharmacies that stock it, though not all pharmacies stock it. And, uh, yeah, it's important to mention as well, given the sort of the focus on um, stigma for International Overdose Awareness Day, that, um, you know, drug related reform <laughs> remains highly controversial, including in Victoria, but in Australia more generally. And, you know, an example of that is the hostile kind of media attention that the North Richmond Injecting Supervised Injecting Service deals with, the hostile media discourse around the proposed second site in the CBD and, you um, but you know, although that's kind of all part of the mix and part of the kind of context, it's good to be able to discuss some some more positive news in relation to these things. And so, just before we move, turn to Cione and Kate, uh, uh, Sione and Jane, um, Kate, perhaps maybe you could give us a bit of an overview.
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Adrian. Um, so, look, the field of drug laws really complicated as um, many of those watching might know but in Victoria the main law that deals with drugs is called the Drugs, Poisons and Controlled Substances Act and that act has many components. It deals with um, the classification of different substances, licensing and permits around access um, to them. It um, contains a number of offences around use and possession of drugs several uh, provisions in that act deal with the supervised injecting facility, which you mentioned earlier, Adrian. Um, But the law also regulates access to naloxone. And this is a bit complicated because there are regulations attached to the act. Um, But essentially the, the kind of bottom line is that there have been for a few years, some important restrictions around who can access naloxone and how you actually go about getting naloxone. And so what happened was late last year, the Victorian Labor government proposed changing the law so that more people could get access to naloxone, essentially, um, in order to help prevent drug overdoses. And um, the mechanisms by which this happened are a bit complicated, so I won't run you through all of those legal specifics, but basically, in a nutshell, um, there has been a legal change in the last little while that will now allow needle and syringe programs to give naloxone to peers who can then use it um, whenever it's needed. So people will no longer need to attend pharmacies and consult with pharmacists in order to get access to naloxone. You don't need um, something like a prescription in order to get it. Um, And essentially naloxone becomes a lot more accessible. And um, those changes are obviously very important because the more people that we can get Um, The the more people that have naloxone in their hands, the better, the the better chances of drug overdoses being reversed or prevented. Um, But also, too, it's really important that needle and syringe programs be able to put naloxone in the hands of peers because we know that stigma is still a major issue for people uh, who use drugs and having to go to places like pharmacies and consult with pharmacists in order to get naloxone could be a major hurdle for a lot of people. Um, And that's because although there are of course some great pharmacists and pharmacies out there, um, not everybody feels comfortable in those spaces. They often experience stigma and discrimination. Um, Levels of trust among or between people who use drugs and healthcare professionals is um, relatively poor. And so this is a really, really important legal change. I should say that there was just another legal change that also uh, went through Parliament at the same time as this change to naloxone. And this is uh, law reform that a lot of us have been pushing for for a really long time. So I was thrilled to see um, this get through as well. And that is a change around the rules uh, regarding peer distribution of uh, sterile needles and syringes. So essentially... um, there has been a, uh, a law in Victoria in place in Victoria for a long time that says I can go to a needle and syringe program and get a needle and syringe, uh, they can give it to me, but I can't then pass it on to any of you, that that becomes illegal. And that's been known as the prohibition on secondary supply or peer distribution. Um, so the law around around that has now changed. and. Um, it means that that practice of peer distribution, which has been going on, you know, for ages anyway, and was always something that people did um, uh, is now lawful. And that's really important because um, that practice is a crucial, critical part of harm reduction in Victoria.
1: Mm. Thanks, Kate. So, you know, given, you mentioned sort of all the work that goes into these changes. so. Sione, I thought we maybe we could start with you and think about, um, you know, legislative changes are the result of a lot of background act- advocacy, long-term activism, which is actually quite a rich history of that in Australia in this area. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about the work that Harm Reduction Victoria does and, and maybe your allies and how this has contributed to these recent shifts that we've seen.
3: Sure, absolutely. Thank you for that, um, for the summary as well, Kate. Um, as far as sort of distribution or secondary supply of needles and syringes goes um, some years ago actually uh, i wrote a policy paper at um at newer in new south wales which is harm reduction victoria's sibling organization in new south wales about this very issue and one of the reasons that we made that a policy and advocacy priority was that um, continually in the community when we were doing community development and health promotion projects in the community of people who inject drugs one of the first things that the community often wanted to do was set up their own outreach needle and syringe program sort of services because they were already doing it anyway. And it was a really good way to kind of um, pass on peer education, because one thing that people inject drugs nearly always need at some point is a n- needle and syringe. Um, and so that's often a core part of their day. And so being able to um, be able to, to, to marry peer education and so forth to that's really important. But uh, of course, as Kate mentioned, it's illegal, um, which is, Abs- which was absolutely crazy. So, we weren't able to do any sort of formal projects, and nor could NSPs, for that matter, do any formal projects around peer distribution, even though it's probably one of the main ways that needles and syringes get out to the mm-hmm. population. So, it's really important for this to have uh, finally been changed uh, in Victoria um, because it does give uh, organisations and NSPs opportunities to sort of do peer distribution in a more informal way and get more syringes out to people, which is really important. And it's been something that um, uh, a number of uh, drug user organisations, including ABLE at the national level, have been um, advocating for for a long time and so too with vegan syringe programmes as well um, in in Victoria and elsewhere as well because NSP workers know how important it is. So <clears throat> that, that's, that's been fantastic. They've been able to sort of change that little anomaly. But as you mentioned, as far as uh, overdose awareness day goes, the uh, naloxone changes are incredibly important. And I think, you know, just like the needle and syringe program, uh, peer distribution change. I think for us, uh, activism is often about the work that we actually do. So you mentioned the uh, program that the ACT uh, drug use organization, Karma uh, undertook many years ago um, to to deliver um, take-home naloxone to their community. Jane here uh, in Victoria also um, started a program like that very, very soon after. And really it was the success of those programs in some respects. Uh, I think uh, Jane probably won't say this because she's very, um, uh, 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 very, uh, you know, is not one to boast, but um, for many years, Harm Reduction Victoria and Jane was really the uh, main supplier of naloxone to the community of people who inject drugs. Um, And we were giving out thousands of kits, and one thing that I know we always did was ensure that anyone that left a workshop left with uh, naloxone, um, and so Jane would make sure that people knew how to use it before they leave, um, and ensure that we that we got that into their hands. But it was always a real—it's um, always a bit of a—we um, uh, always have to jump through lots of hoops really to get that naloxone to people's hands. So different organisations have done it in different ways, but generally speaking, you needed to get a prescription and. Um, then later on, when you could get it from chemists, you had to pay large amounts to chemists to um, to to give to people um, to give naloxone to people, and then theoretically they had to go down and pick it up. And so our programs are all about reducing those barriers. And that activism really is is some of the that, that activism really is where a lot of our advocacy came from, which was just saying, can we just get rid of as many of these barriers as possible? So you know, other organisations you mentioned, Pennington Institute. Um, VADA, other uh, NSP workers and NSPs themselves and programs that run NSPs have also advocated for this for quite some time Um, and being able to hand out uh, naloxone through NSPs and I would add as well through peer workers, um, peer workers were specifically sort of called out as well in some of the communications from from, um, the Department of Health um, that uh, peer, peer workers will also be able to, to hand out the Loxone, um is really is, is sort of the culmination of, of a lot of those efforts. And I suppose um, those efforts also included um, quite a lot of behind the scenes work with, um, you know, politicians, offices with crossbenchers. And um, I think, you know, it's, it's also fair to say that Martin Foley... Um, who's our current minister for health had a particular interest in making sure that we figured out a way to get naloxone to more people's hands, and that's something that his office in particular has pushed forward and spoke to. Spent quite a bit of time talking to Harm Reduction Victoria about how, um, you know, how how peer workers could be in- included in this in this work as well. So. Um, uh, yeah so it's, it's a it's a really important um, moment I suppose because really for us it's all about getting more naloxone into more people's hands what impact that has on harm reduction Victoria is a different thing but we can talk about that probably later
0: yeah I think we do have a question about that but listening to that it just sounded you can really hear how effortful um, you know this kind of advocacy has been and so I suppose uh, related to that Cioni or maybe Jane if you feel like chatting I just was maybe just interested in how it felt like I imagine this is kind of quite a meaningful event in like the history of the work that you do and if you've been doing it for decades just yeah wondering how um how you feel about it
4: um I'll go yeah, yeah. <laughs> um it is it's huge really when you think about it like you know 2013 was when we first started doing it and like Sioni mentioned um, we didn't want to train people and then just tell them, leave it up to them to get it. Cause there were so many barriers in place for people to get it. Even when the rescheduling happened where people could get it without a prescription um, money was a barrier, like um, the cost. And then even when they, they removed the cost and um, it was up to a person to have to go and collect it. There were still people that were not making that final step of getting to the pharmacy to get it. And, um, it just seemed crazy when you had all these willing workers that were willing to, to hang on to it to give out to people and legally we couldn't. So it's huge as far as workers go. But unfortunately, as far as the drug-using community go, I don't think they're, they're aware of all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes for them. You know, they have a hard enough life as it is. And, and, and yeah, I just think that... um. Yeah, they're not going to notice it, but workers will for sure. And and people will start noticing it when they can go and get a syri- needle and syringe and they can get their naloxone at the same time. Mm. I mean, it just makes sense. We That's all we've been asking for from the beginning. Why can't they get it when they get their needles and syringes?
1: Mm.
4: You know, why can't people have it on hand to give to their friends when they see them? Mm. You know, it's common sense.
0: I mean, I suppose that's also important for us to hear because there's like some, I don't, for one of a better word, there's some translation work to be done to like communicate these changes to the people that's most affected, that are most affected by them. I mean, we might all be kind of aware of them, but um, I suppose it's about making sure that the information actually gets into the hands of uh, people who it's actually really important um, for them to know about it.
3: It also yeah. needs to be funding, frankly, for... Yeah. <laughs> Needs to be able to provide it. So, there is definitely this great thing called the Naloxone Subsidy Initiative, which some organizations are able to access, which basically pays for Naloxone for people. But, um, you know, I'm not going to go uh, criticize too hard for not having a perfect program in place in Victoria yet. You know, we've got the changes made, the regulations need to be sort of sorted as Kate. Cap- mentioned um but in, in some respects it's just very much just the first the door is opened and now we need to kind of populate the room full of stuff for people to actually utilize because um i, I guess that's really the, the the next step but as far as meaning to have what it what it means to us i think it's you know different at different times but me myself like many people uh who who use drugs um you know i've literally lost count of the number of people that i know that have have overdosed and passed away, unfortunately. And look, these changes aren't going to necessarily, uh, wouldn't necessarily have fixed all of that. Um, But in some respects, it's about um, us getting to a more sensible place, in my opinion, around how we, a more sensible policy environment, more sensible um, legal environment that um, in terms of dealing with uh, illicit drug use and from, my my personal HRVX perspective that includes decriminalization and includes a safe supply of, um, of of illicit drugs for people as well ideally um, but these are steps along I suppose stepping stones or bricks in the wall towards those places so that for me that's part of what this this means which is that you know um, it is possible f- for changes to occur, uh, and sometimes, as you mentioned, it takes a long time. Um, but I think for me, the meaningfulness is that every time something sensible, in my, something sensible that makes sense to me, happens in drug policy, uh, it, it sort of re, you know, uh, it sort of recharges me just a little bit to, to to think that maybe we will get to a place where we actually have a sensible overall policy.
0: I think that's kind of important it, to acknowledge that this work can be really fatiguing, especially when it's not um, funded properly, as you, as you mentioned, and at the beginning as well, when a lot of the advocacy efforts are maybe just people like Jane doing something off, off their own back, you know, it's um, and then you know, 10 or 20 years later, uh, these kind of policy changes.
1: Happen. So, would this current, these current shifts, have uh implications for your sort of daily work, Jane, at HRV?
4: Um, absolutely it will because, um, you know, in the beginning, Harm Reduction Victoria was the only place really in Victoria that was hooking people up with naloxone. And um, now there's so many more agencies doing it, which the demand as far as on our job goes, it's dropped. So it means that we can concentrate on doing other things that are all going to contribute towards the betterment anyway. Like, you know, stigma is still a huge issue. You know, you can take down lots of barriers, but that stigma barrier is still going to be there and that's going to prevent some people from accessing stuff that they need, like naloxone. So I think that's where we can focus our work a little bit more. I don't know. I haven't... Check that
3: in with the boss yet? But <laughs> well, that's—I mean, that's true. And That's the price of innovation, right? Is you get copied by everyone because it works, uh, and then you're you're slightly less busy, so you get to do other stuff. But yeah, I mean, Jane has, i mean, of, of course, yeah, stigma and discrimination is really important, and 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 Jane's already sort of started changing the way that we do um, our overdose program and in terms of reaching out to the regions and stuff like that during COVID. So, you know, there's always more more to do. And I suppose it
1: takes pressure off your daily work. You can focus on some of that other higher-level advocacy stuff that you are mentioning before as well.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And like Sioni mentioned, just the fact that we can do it online now too, which just means we can get to so many more places that physically we couldn't get to. Um, So, yeah, yeah, people um, from, yeah, all over the state are actually getting online to do naloxone training, which is great
3: and that's partly a function of these changes right so previously when you had to have a prescription you know we used to have to line a doctor up or a gp or something to line them up get everyone's names get a script in their name get it into their hands um doing that remotely would have been even trickier but um even just the the scheduling changes mean that we can just um figure out ways to get it into people's hands in other ways apart from a script Yeah. yeah
0: Um, yeah, we kind of have covered this a little bit in some of our other questions, but I suppose we were just wondering about how you anticipate these changes will affect the health and well-being of people who use drugs. Um, you know, we've kind of discussed some of those things, like getting naloxone into people's hands, um, you know, hopefully means there's less overdose. But are there any other things that you can think about or speak to?
3: Um, I think, well, I think one of the, I'm not sure whether this will actually be taken up widely, but one of, like I said earlier on, one of the key things about um, making secondary supply um, illegal. So much of what we do in harm reduction is in this gray area, uh, and you can't talk about it, you can't promote it. You know, we used to make sure people got naloxone in their hands. Sometimes that meant that technically maybe what we were sometimes doing wasn't entirely 100% legal. Um, It was in the spirit of the law, but um, the same goes with... with, um, with the needle syringe program, secondary supply stuff, you know, it's not always legal to suggest that you take more syringes for your friends, but we know from a bloodborne virus prevention perspective, that's really super important. Um, so being able to do it openly and widely is really important. And I think that like a lot of these changes, hopefully, well, hopefully the changes will happen for people immediately, but also the longer term impacts are hopefully things like, um, NSPs and needle and syringe programs, I should say being able to do, um, uh, being able to do programs where they actually ensure that more and more people are able to access um, needles and syringes, like our, our peer networking program has always done that. And and we focused, um, you know, people in the peers in the community on, uh, we focused on peers in the community who uh, are able to access people who don't usually access services. So not only um, are they able to get access to uh, sterile needles and syringes, uh, which hopefully has an impact on bloodborne virus prevention, HIV, and FC prevention. Um, it also keeps them slightly in touch with a service like ours and allows our peers to do peer education. So, if more programs can do, uh, sorry, if more services can do programs like that, then surely more people will have access to sterile syringes, which is re- really important because we know there's a sort of a hard core line of about 15% of people who access NSPs. Um, uh, continually uh, end up being in situations where they do receptive sharing of syringes. And so if we can nudge that down even further, uh, we'll be able to impact John, on hep C rates. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh,
1: maybe um, given we're talking about these sort of broader shifts as well, um, maybe Kate, uh, I thought maybe you could discuss, you know, how while these amended laws are significant, but are there any related changes, you know, from a legal perspective that you'd like to see or perhaps are already being advocated in the area or anything like that that's relevant?
2: Yeah, so so many. I mean, it could take another hour to kind of run through all the, the reforms that I think would be valuable. Um, I mean, Siony talked about the long history of advocacy and activism and how long it takes us to get to a point of reforms like this. And um, And, you know, one thing I would mention is that, Um, There have been numerous inquiries, uh, parliamentary inquiries into drug law reform across the country in the last few years, including here in Victoria. And so I'd perhaps start there and mention that um, 2017-18, that kind of um, time, the Victorian Parliament uh, Committee did uh, do a a very big uh, inquiry into drug law reform and they produced... A report that was many hundreds of pages long, and there were fifty recommendations for reform. Um, the reforms that we're talking about today were in that report, but mm-hmm. they're just two of the fifty. I've lost track of how many of those reforms have been um, ushered through. There might be another couple, but uh, the vast majority of them haven't yet come through the system. And so you could start there and go back and look at that report, and and um, and you know you'll see numerous reforms that. Are relevant to the prevention of drug overdoses, but also to the prevention of other harms, including um, bloodborne viruses, as Sioni was discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, criminalisation of drugs is obviously the number one issue. I think there are many factors that shape fatal drug overdoses, but the criminalisation of drugs is you know number one on the list. And, um, and I think in order for us to ever get to a point where we you know, we'll see a really dramatic reduction in drug overdoses, that would be the number one reform. But I wondered if I could also just kind of come around um, at this a different way and just take you all back to something that um, Minister Foley, Martin Foley, um, mentioned when this bill was first introduced into the Parliament, because I think it's, um, I think it's important and it's a a kind of um, useful way to reflect on reforms. And it takes a bit of explanation. So, um, As I think all of you know, Victoria is one of the jurisdictions in Australia that has a charter of human rights and responsibilities. And what that charter requires is um, essentially every time a parliamentarian introduces a new bill into parliament, a proposed change to the law, they're required to um, essentially tell the parliament whether that law is compatible with human rights And if it's not, so that is if the law would infringe on human rights in in some way, the parliament needs to, the parliamentarian responsible for introducing that law needs to explain which human rights might be infringed or breached by that proposed new law and set out a justification for breaching it. And um, so when Martin Foley introduced these changes late last year, he had to um, go through that process and speak to how these changes to both the um, law around naloxone and the law around secondary supply related to human rights. And he mentioned something which is known to many of us, but I think um, is really important. And, he, and that is that he, he talked about the right to life in the context of drug law. And he said, the right to life is the most fundamental of all human rights. It is concerned with both the protection and preservation of life. The right has been interpreted as including an obligation on the state to refrain from conduct that results in the arbitrary deprivation of life, as well as a positive duty to introduce appropriate safeguards to minimise the risk of loss of life. And after um, taking us through that legal um, sort of definition of the right to life, he then said that the change to the naloxone law and indeed the change to secondary supply um, law would protect and promote the right to life. And um, I think the key point I wanted to make here is that many of the laws that we have in Victoria and indeed in other parts of Australia were introduced before we had this Charter of Rights or in other states were introduced without, we don't even have a Charter of Human Rights just yet. And those laws have never been subjected to a human rights assessment or human rights compatibility Mm. process. Um, and I think if they were, uh, by, by this definition that Minister Foley has um, reminded us of, and that is the state's positive duty to introduce appropriate safeguards to minimise the risk of loss of life, I think we would find that many of the drug laws that we have in Victoria fall foul of that test. Um, we don't still have we still don't have a prison needle and syringe program in Victoria. In fact, we don't have one anywhere in, in the country, um, and there are numerous other um, legal changes that I think uh, would fall foul of that. So, I think that's a, a really good reminder. That statement from Minister Foley about how we should um, think about drug law going forward. I'd like to see parliamentarians be. Um, thinking about the future of drug law with this kind of test in mind. And um, ultimately, I think it should move us to the point where we eventually hopefully see um, uh, a decriminalisation or even legalisation of drugs.
0: Mm -hmm. Funny, some of the things you were just saying about um, the principle of, like, the right to life is so... um, uh, similar or resonate with the principles of like harm reduction, you know that it's about the you know the right the right to health and the, and the right to life, which is not usually a kind of ethics you think about in terms of the law. Um, interesting, Siona, Did you have anything to say about any of the stuff that Kate just said? You looked like you were nodding along enthusiastically.
3: Oh no, I just I um uh, I just thought it was interesting that um, that Minister Foley f- framed it that way, and I think it is actually something. Positive, because as you know, I was just agreeing that as Kate said, so many of our laws are not uh, potentially would 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 fall foul of that test. Um, and I was just really thinking, trying to think, I was just really thinking about how to take that sort of advocacy forward. Because I think that you know, um, actually, I think you know, <clears throat> politics is very uh, tricky. But I think you know or uh, well, government is tricky, politics makes it even harder, I think is maybe one way to put it. But I think that in Victoria at the moment, we do have a, a government who at least um, considers these things. And, um, you, you know, there are a lot of things, as we talked about before, there are there are a lot of activities and actions that go into uh, making changes like this happen. This is a pretty big change, but at the same time, it's not on the same scale as something like... Uh, like, like doing away with certain drug laws. So um, just just reflecting on the amount of time and effort it sort of took for these changes to happen, um, just thinking that it's probably as we are probably quite quite away from making those sort of bigger wholesale changes, but countries in, around the world have done it in different times. And it's just unfortunate that too often it's linked to some kind of mass death event. So mm. um, certainly, in Vancouver at the moment, um, in British Columbia, in Canada, um, there are there are moves. There have been moves made to offer safe supply to to people who use and inject drugs. Um, so what that means really is providing illicit drugs that have been um, that have that uh, that have been tested or have be, or have actually been obtained in a um, in a uh, illegal way and then offered to illicit drug users perhaps is how I should have put it um, without the need for prescriptions and, and all that sort of thing as well uh, and 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 it's been a process of civil disobedience by other drug users basically and the reason for that is that there's essentially a poison drug supply in Canada at the moment where fentanyl is um is causing a massive overdose uh, epidemic, as we've talked about earlier. Um, and so I guess what I was reflecting on is the fact that, you know, we sort of need a combination of um, advocates like us that work within the law to um, make changes to that law, but also sometimes we need to remember that we we often operate in the grey area and to push those boundaries where possible.
1: Mm.
3: And it's clear that occasionally politicians and governments respond to that.
1: Um, should we maybe move towards uh, wrapping up the discussion now If, if um, on, on, you know, the, on that note? So, I mean, I think, again, like we sort of, when we were introducing it, sort of thinking about International Overdose Awareness Day this year is a reminder that um, overdose and, you know, issues around uh, um drug consumption stuff remains significant, even in a context of sort of where the public psyche is dominated by COVID-19 mm-hmm. and related restrictions and that kind of thing. And so, you know, a day like this is, is, is important to mark, it's important to mark days like this, not only for remembering loved ones, friends and family that aren't with us anymore, but also addressing, like we've been discussing the significant gains and wins for the sector. So, which is why chatting about these reforms with, this, with uh, you all today is, is been important. And so, I think kind of what a lot of what this discussion gets gets towards is that, you know, while efforts to address overdose, um, you know, things like overdose uh, like naloxone and um, fresh injecting equipment and stuff are really important. um, We always need to be agitating for these broader legislative uh, changes such as these amended laws, decriminalisation efforts, and that kind of thing to achieve the kind of level of traction limited to really like, um address this issue as most effectively as possible as well as beyond that just to think about health enhancing and improving the health and well-being and dignity of people who use drugs beyond just thinking about an acute issue of overdose itself. So um yeah so thanks everyone for taking the time to participate in the discussion today. Um, Jane, Sioni and Kate taking the time to discuss these recent shifts and also how all your important work um, relates to the goals of International Overdose Awareness Day.
4: Thanks for having us.
3: Yeah, thanks. Oh,
4: thank so you.
0: Thanks, Yoni. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Kate.
3: Cheers. Later.